The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are in the book of Titus. Those of you who haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Titus towards the end of your New Testament there, the end of the Bible. Titus is called an, a pastoral epistle. It's one of the three pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they are very similar. They were written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to Titus. These two men were associates and trained by the Apostle Paul, worked with him for possibly decades. Now it's the end of Paul's ministry, and Paul commissions Titus to hang on in Ephesus and do some needed work there on his behalf. And so Timothy's working at Ephesus. Meanwhile, Titus is doing stuff for the Apostle Paul uh, on the island of Crete in the cities and the churches there, these newly developing churches. And so there's a lot of parallels between Titus and First and Second Timothy. And we're going to see a couple examples of that as we go. But today we are looking at verse 9. We've been going through the specific qualifications for a pastor or an elder in a church. And we've gone through many of those starting at verse 5. Actually, follow along as I read. Take us up to verse 9 today. Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, on that island there, in order that you would set in order what remains at all these churches and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer or elder or pastor must be above reproach as God's steward. He can't be self-willed nor quick-tempered nor addicted to wine nor pugnacious or a fighter and not be fond of sordid gain or greedy for money. But rather, verse 8, he needs to be hospitable, loving strangers. He needs to be loving what is good and true. He needs to be sensible, clear thinker, just or fair. He needs to be devout, take his job seriously before God, self-controlled in his lifestyle. And then today we're looking at verse 9. And this is another qualification. All of verse 9 is really one qualification with many implications. And that is in verse 9, the elder needs to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, the elder or pastor, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we've gone through all the qualifications Verse 5 down to verse 8, there were many, and we even referenced some in 1 Timothy 3 that added to that list. And on the bottom of your handout there, with an asterisk um, on your bulletin there, I listed the other qualifications that are required of an elder or pastor in the church that are not listed in Titus that we need to know, but we don't have time to go over those. So I, I listed those on the bottom of that page. An elder, in addition to everything we've set up to this point already listed in Titus, the elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd, bishop in a local church needs to be ready for action, ready to go at all times, alert, aware, awake, conscious of what is going on at all times. He also needs to be not lacking experience. That's from 1 Timothy 3.6. Literally, the Greek word is he can't be green, like a, a little young, and it's referring to a little green sapling of a plant that is underdeveloped, it is immature, it is still growing, it lacks experience. So an elder can't be someone who's green. 
In other words, they, they can't be lacking in experience. That's why the word is elder, which means older, mature one. So an elder needs to be somebody who's older, has been around the block, has wisdom to draw from. Very important. Can't be green, not lacking experience, First Timothy 3.6. And another uh, qualification, the elder needs to have a good reputation inside the church and also outside the church with unbelievers in just the community so that he's consistent in his godly life, not a hypocrite. Good reputation. And then he needs to be observed at length before he's actually ordained. That's First Timothy 5. And, uh, Paul says, don't ordain elders too quickly. You've got to be sure who you're laying hands on. Do you really know this person? Very, very important. So don't lay hands on somebody and ordain them prematurely. They've got to go through an examination process. So uh, those kind of fill it in. And now we'll go on to this qualification in verse 9. This qualification is also referenced in 1 Timothy 3. Timothy's version is shorter where it says that an elder needs to be apt to teach, able to teach, competent to teach, trained to teach, gifted to teach. Not everybody is gifted as a Bible teacher. You can actually be gifted as a math teacher and not be gifted as a Bible teacher. It doesn't necessarily carry over. So the ability to teach the Word of God, Scripture, supernatural Word of God, is a supernatural gift and enablement from God. And it is rare. And James chapter 3 said it should be very, very rare because of the high accountability that comes with it. And every elder needs to be apt to teach. And complement to that is verse 9 here in Titus 1, our verse of the day. Let's go ahead and look at it. Um, and the qualification is apt to teach. And specifically, in more detail, Titus 1.9 tells us, that the elder or pastor needs to be holding fast the faithful word. The, faithful, the word is referring to Scripture, biblical truth. For us, it's the Old Testament and New Testament. So an elder or pastor needs to be holding fast or clinging to the word of God, Scripture, the Bible, which is in accordance with the teaching. So biblical te- whatever you're teaching, it better be biblical teaching consistent with Scripture and what the apostles taught. And specifically, the byproduct will be that the pastor or elder will be able to do two things, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And so there are really four components to this qualification that Paul lays out in verse 9, and that's how I broke it up because it was just so clear. These four things that need to be true about an elder or pastor with regard to the Word of God, the Bible, and how he handles the Bible and understands the Bible. I put there that during his earthly ministry, Jesus was the master shepherd and overseer of God's people, the Pastor of all pastors, the quintessential senior pastor. Jesus made a priority of preaching and teaching. His authority was the Word of God or Scripture with biblical truth. Jesus fed, exhorted, encouraged, and rebuked people. Today's pastors need to do the same. Titus 1.9. In Titus 1.9, the Apostle Paul states that qualified elders and pastors need to exhibit a mastery of Scripture in four ways. A mastery of Scripture is the point of emphasis here. So... Very important and very practical. Let's go ahead and look at what these four components are with having a mastery of Scripture. And number one, pastors or elders are to be fearlessly committed to Scripture. Fearlessly committed to Scripture. That's what the Greek words there refer to, holding fast the faithful word. By the way, the point of emphasis here is on how an elder or pastor handles the Word of God, understands the Word of God, and teaches the Word of God. But I, we need a footnote to set it in context. And you need to flip back two books to 1 Timothy 5 from Titus. Go back to 1 Timothy 5. 
this qualification needs to be true of every elder. But not every elder is called by God, required by God, to teach in the same context or to teach to the same degree or to teach in the same venues. That's clear from 1 Timothy chapter 5. So look and I'll show you what I'm talking about. In other words, every church needs to have a plurality of elders, but there is always a distinction among the elders in every church in terms of their role and their function. The elders need to function as a team. They're not all doing the exact same thing. That doesn't work. If you have 11 quarterbacks on a team at the same time, bad news. Nobody's blocking. So it's the same with the elders. Everybody's got a, a gift, a calling, a duty to fulfill, an enablement from God. And so that's clear in 1 Timothy 5.17 where Paul says the elders who rule well here in Ephesus are to be considered worthy of double honor. So there are elders who rule. They're, they're called ruling elders. So they kind of take the lead in providing direction and leadership. All the elders rule collectively, but among all the leadership of the elders, there's an, a leader among the leaders. There always has been by God's design. If you said, And the twelve apostles were the first elder board or group of elders. And who was the leader? It was definitely Peter. There's no uh, question about that among that twelve. They ruled together and led together, but Peter was the point man. So he was a ruling elder. So there are distinctions even among the elders in terms of their duties and even their profile and, and their exposure. I mean, if you think about it and you trace the 12 apostles, it was who ruled the first church at Jerusalem? It was a mega church, by the way. It was the 12 apostles and the elders. Remember Acts chapter 11 and the rest of the book and the, the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders. What's kind of interesting, we never hear about any of the names of those elders. We don't even know who they are. We never really hear them preaching or teaching. We only see Peter and John preaching. Well, what about all those other? What are those other elders doing with all their time? How come they're making all those other elders do all the work? Well, they're actually doing very important shepherding work behind the scenes that complements what the lead guy, Peter and John, are doing. That is very, very important. James the Less was one of the twelve apostles that Jesus himself appointed, trained, commissioned, and laid the foundation of the church. And if I were to ask you, what do you know about James the Less? You would say nothing because... He's not even, it doesn't tell us in Scripture. What was he doing? Well, we know Peter was preaching and teaching. James the Less was not preaching and teaching to the same degree that Peter was or Paul. So there's an example. There are roles and gifts that elders are called to do and they've got to complement one another. There are distinctions. First Timothy 5.17 goes on. There are ruling elders. And then it says uh, elders are uh, deserving of double honor, especially, get this, those who work hard at preaching and teaching who labor in word and doctrine. So there are elders who are called to a, like a full-time capacity of preaching and teaching. And typically at a church, that'd be like your senior pastor, or even though there's 15 pastors, everybody knows just the one guy, like John Piper. He's got like 17 elders. And nobody knows who they are, but they're just as important as he is. But he's the teaching and preaching pastor. That's his job. He's the elder that does that. And believe me, those other elders, they are working hard. And the same would be here at our church and any church uh, that has a biblical model. I'm the, I've been hired and was called to be the teaching and preaching pastor. That's my title, pastor teacher. And then I am supported by other elders who do other work that is equally important, that complements what I do, that the church needs, shepherding, a lot of it behind the scenes. So that needs to be stated up front. So 
Uh, but I also believe that every elder needs to have a teaching ministry of the Word of God. And it doesn't need to be in a public context. Many times there are very important one-on-one conversations they're having with members or other saints or giving counsel from the Word of God. That's the ministry of the Word. Every elder needs to be involved in the ministry of the Word, regardless of the context. And there are those who are called specifically to have a public preaching and teaching ministry. And in this case at GBF, it would be me. I'm not the senior pastor. I'm the pastor teacher. Oh, that's my role and my duty. And I thoroughly enjoy it and thank God for it, that he's entrusted uh, that to me. So let's go ahead now and look at these specific qualifications with respect to handling the word of God as a preacher teacher in the capacity of elder. Number one, pastors are to be fearlessly committed to scripture. The pastor is to be holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast, says a couple English translations, And then a couple others say, hold firmly. And actually, in the Greek text, it's just one word where we have holding fast or hold firmly. We have two English words. It's just one Greek word. It's a preposition tacked on to a verb. And most of the time, when you tack a preposition onto the front of a verb in Greek, you intensify that verb. It is an intense, uh, dramatic explanation of that word. So uh, it accentuates its meaning. So really, it means to... Hold on tenaciously. Hold on tenaciously. And don't let go of the faithful word. And that's why I put there uh, that the pastor needs to be fearlessly committed to Scripture. Present tense, continually, ongoing. Don't get distracted. Don't get intimidated by culture or the fear of man or popular opinion. Or when somebody takes you to task. Can't do it. You've got to hold on. Hold on tight and not let go courageously, fearlessly, tenaciously to the word of God, to scripture as God's very truth. It's got to be done. So pastors are to be fearlessly committed to scripture. So this is this takes some courage because when you teach on a regular basis as a regular pastor teacher at a church, it's. It's easy to be criticized. It, and it's easy for people to take pot shots at you. That's just, it's kind of the, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor teacher. People take pot shots. People encourage you, but all, people also take dirty pot shots. And you hear about it, usually in writing with an anonymous note, or today it's email, those kind of things. Um, but that's nothing new. That's always gone on. And many times, pastors will cave into that pressure. And they will not fearlessly hold on to the teaching of Scripture, but they will actually amend and change their teaching to accommodate other people who have criticized them because they're worried about either acceptance or their popularity or or they're just lacking courage. And a pastor, faithful pastor, cannot do that. And that's so easy in a godless culture when we're being influenced by the world and what they think. And many times those ideas trickle into the church. And then what you're teaching out of the Bible directly is head-on in antithesis to what they're being taught in the world and you have a train wreck you have a collision and so sometimes what you teach out of the bible can be offensive to people or they can question it or it can hurt their feelings or it can convict them and make them uncomfortable that's what the bible does and so that's why this is a prerequisite Uh, you have got to be a person who is going to be you know stay the course and be fearlessly committed to the authority of scripture and preaching it as it is regardless of the consequences regardless of people's opinions regardless of what being politically correct is all about. Uh, Look at 2 Timothy 4. 
Paul's telling Titus this because he knows this. it's inevitable. It is inevitable that a pastor is going to struggle with this and be confronted with this. Criticisms that he might cower under. Pressure he might cave into. Paul even gave a prophecy about it. Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Realize in the last days, difficult times will come. By the way, people, we are in the last days. We are. Difficult times are here. That's how we could read it. This is a prophecy has been fulfilled. But realize this, that today we are in the last days. And difficult times have come upon us. And then he goes on, chapter 4, verse 1. But you, pastor, you, preacher, you it doesn't matter what the times of the season are. You can't cave. You need to continually, fearlessly hold on to and cleave to the truth of Scripture as the authority regardless of what anybody says or what they want to do to you. And he gives this warning to pastors in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, and even Titus, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Bible. That's all I am interested. When I prepare all week, study, pray, think, get up here, pre- I am just thinking, I'm just going to teach the Bible. That's all that matters. Church tradition doesn't matter. Popular opinion doesn't matter. What I think doesn't matter. It's Is this what the Word of God actually says? Because I'm here speaking for God. And I don't want to misrepresent God out of His Word. Preach the Word. That's what it means. That's it. That's all you do. It's not tell stories. It's not entertain. It's not pacify people. It's not, ooh, don't hurt people's feelings. Oh, don't re- read that verse. You might step on somebody's toes. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season. Get this. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Wow! Reprove. Those are strong words, by the way. Those are aggressive words, by the way. And that's what a pastor, teaching pastor needs to do. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And teach. Why? Verse 3. The time will come. Actually, the time is here. When they will not endure sound doctrine. Who's they? The church. People in the church. That's what he's talking about. The time will come where it will be commonplace in the churches or the people who profess to be Christians in those churches. That day is here. What about them? They will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure healthy doctrine. They will not endure correct Bible teaching. They will not endure. They will not tolerate biblical teaching in the church. So Paul's kind of warning him, boy, don't be surprised. You get some pushback. Thanks for the warning, Paul. Well, why don't they want healthy biblical teaching right out of the Scriptures? Well, this is what they want. They know what they want. But wanting to have their ears tickled. Wow. That's what they want. You know what that means? Tell me what I want to hear. You know what else that means? Entertain me. Please me. Don't tell me anything I don't want to hear. Don't hurt my feelings. Don't convict me. Don't challenge me. Entertain me. Make me feel good. That's what that means. And Paul's saying that's wrong. If you're compromising the truth of Scripture just to entertain and tickle the ears of your audience, you have compromised and really adulterated your calling as a preacher of the Word. And you're not doing people any good. You know what you're doing? You're actually poisoning them with poisonous doctrine. You're giving them false teaching. A Christian, so that they can grow, they need to grow. There's only one source to grow on. It's the truth of the Bible. It's the milk and the meat of our spiritual diet is biblical teaching. And when we compromise that and water it down or add poisonous stuff to it, it is unhealthy. 
It is deadly. It is like eating bad things physically that hurt your body. This ruins the Christian diet. It undermines Christian growth. It destroys the church. It dishonors God. So it's of the highest implications. Time will come. They just want their ears tickled. As a matter of fact, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll fire the biblical pastor and they're going to hire uh, teachers and preachers who will accommodate them and their priorities and their own personal agenda. That day is here, by the way. Wow. Verse 4, And they will turn away their ears from the truth. They don't want to hear it. When, but just before we began GBF six years ago, I took our men who were prospective elders and deacons through Mark Dever's book. Great, great little book. And we hit one chapter. I will never forget it. It was a sentence he put in there. He said, because he was talking about church planters. And I get, when you be encouraged, pastor or guys, when you start your church, just focus on one thing. Just preach the word. Stay focused. Preach the word. And here's what will happen. You will attract some people and you will repel others. You, you keep preaching. Some people will come to your church, they'll check it out, and then they will just leave with a disdain of what they heard at your church. And he said, you know what? That is a good thing. That is a good thing. That is a healthy thing. The Word of God and its truth should attract the godly and really confront the ungodly and make a clear distinction. And that has been incredibly helpful for me as we have gone in our church plan and just trying to stay focused on our job and calling of teaching the Word of God to the best way possible without any compromise. So uh, the pastor, preaching pastor especially, needs to hold fearlessly to the Scriptures and be committed and not compromise. And, it, you know, just common doctrines today that offend people. Uh, election. Even Christians don't want to hear that. Uh, hell. Sin, God's wrath, uh, or if you talk about uh, that gay marriage is wrong and sinful, especially in today's culture, offends people. Uh, creation, if you believe in a literal view of creation, you're a kook. You can't talk about uh, females are not called to be pastors because that offends women, etc., etc. You can't say that Islam is a false religion because that hurts people's feelings and it's divisive. Those are just basic examples that might be uh, relevant in our culture today. So that's point number one. Pastors are to be fearlessly committed to Scripture. Let's go on to number two. What else should a pastor or elder be, have a mastery of with respect to Scripture? Uh, pastors are to be systematically competent with Scripture. Systematically competent. This has to do with his, your, his training in the Word of God as an elder. Here at GBF, to become an elder, you've got to be qualified. By the way, most of those qualifications we looked at, they aren't his duties. They are character qualifications. Character qualifications. And part of the qualifications here, according to Paul says, then there's, there's got to be um, a modicum of training that goes on with respect to the Bible and how he knows the Scriptures and has a mastery of the Scriptures. Because he says right there in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, that's the Scriptures, which is in accordance with the teaching. Whatever he teaches as a preacher, it's got to be in sync with biblical doctrine. He can't get up and just give his own agenda. Everything that he preaches and says, thus saith the Lord, it's got to be found in the Bible. And he's got to be quoting from the Bible and interpreting the Bible correctly. It's got to be consistent with the New Testament. It's got to be consistent with what the apostles taught. It's got to be consistent with what 
Jesus taught. It needs to be consistent with the entire Old Testament. So in other words, a regular full-time called elder who's a pastor teacher needs to have a mastery of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that is a high and daunting calling. And that's why they invented seminary and formal ways to train men of God so that they do know the whole counsel of God and can have a mastery of it so they don't distort the Word of God. And that is absolutely essential. And there's that little phrase in Acts 2 where it says the church, early church gathered together and the first thing they did together is they listened to the apostles' doctrine. So a pastor has to be trained to understand the apostles' doctrine. That's the New Testament. And he also has to know the Old Testament. And I, I personally believe a regular Bible teacher who's a pastor, teacher, elder should know Hebrew and Greek because those were the languages of the Bible. If you can't study the Bible in the original language, that is a huge handicap. Huge. And it can take you off in a lot of errors that become very important if you don't know the original languages. So uh, this formal training is very, very important and required of any elder, especially the teaching elder who labors in word and doctrine. Just one verse. Stay in Second Timothy. Look at Second Timothy 2.15. And this is the training part, an ongoing training that is required of a pastor teacher who's an elder in a church. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy's a pastor and an elder in a church. He's an overseer. And Paul tells him and reminds this is not just for Awana kids in second grade. Really, this verse was given to a pastor, an experienced pastor. And how he teaches the Bible and his competency, how important that is. Paul says to Timothy, uh, verse 15 of Second Timothy, be diligent. Oh, man, persevere. Keep working at it. Stay on task. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Study the Bible. Keep studying the Bible. Study it harder. Study it longer. Know it. Keep learning it. Submit to it. Apply it to your life. Keep studying it. Study it again and again. It's a lifelong calling and quest. No one can plumb the depths of the living Word of God. Right? We are all ongoing students of it. And the pastor needs to be a student of the first order when it comes to systematically studying to be competent because your people, your people want to feed on the Word of God. They have questions. You want to be able to feed the sheep, right? You want to be able to do that in a legitimate manner. So uh, the pastor, elder, and teaching pastor needs to be fearlessly committed to Scripture, not compromising, needs to be systematically competent, trained thoroughly. And then number three, pastors and elders need to be patiently commanding with Scripture. They need to patiently command. This is just part and parcel of your duty to be commanding people. Not with my own words. If I'm commanding people, it needs to be a delegated authority. I'm just commanding them God's words. But that's uh, the calling of a, a pastor. If you don't like to tell people what to do, if you have a hard time um, exhorting people, then you probably don't have the gift of being a pastor elder or especially one who labors in word and doctrine. That's got to be a gift. It's got to be a supernatural enablement. Because it's basic to your calling. Uh, so pastors are to patiently command with Scripture. Uh, that is the word. Look at going back to uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word, Scripture, and that your teaching is in accordance with Scripture, the apostles' doctrine and Jesus' doctrine. And you have a mastery over Scripture so that you will do two things. So that you'll have this preaching, teaching ministry 
that really has two points of emphasis. One is positive, one is negative. And the first one he gives is positive. So that you will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. Exhort who? This is exhorting believers in the church. This is in the context of the church. And this is the point of emphasis here is exhorting the sheep, exhorting believers. And the word exhort, uh, very specific, it's a compound word, kaleo, and then para is a preposition on the front of it. And it means to call, to come alongside or to call alongside. It's kind of like going up to someone like a coach does to a player, grabs him around the shoulder and then whispers some wisdom in his ear that he needs to hear. Whether it's encouragement, rebuke, admonishment. Why did you throw that interception? Where, where were you looking? Or, oh, you'll, you'll, you'll get it next time. Or excellent pass. You're, you're giving that side-by-side personal encouragement from the Word of God. That is the word used uh, on exhort. But it is translated, and it's used many different times in the Bible. And here are just some of the ways that it is used depend upon the context. Uh, verse 9, the New American Standard says to exhort. So my, my calling is to exhort the saints. That's the word with scripture. But that word is also legitimately translated, not just as exhort, but also to encourage. That's more positive. Call upon, entreat, plead with, beg, beseech, comfort, more positive, instruct, just kind of neutral, teaching, dispensing information, admonish, more negative, those are just some of the ways that that word is translated. And those are all legitimate. And that's what the pastor needs to do with the word of God to the saints. So you can't have a preacher who's always yelling in an angry tone. And you can't have a pastor who's always just everything's happy and good. Here's some more cotton candy. Doesn't that taste good? Oh, I'm sorry, your teeth are falling out. Um, so there's got to be that balance. Encouraging the saints. And like I said, that's uh, a twofold process of how you teach. There's the teaching to the saints in the church, which is the first verb, which is exhort. And then there's the second component or balance. And that's at the end of verse 9. He says, uh, have a mastery of the word of God. Be gifted as a teacher so that you'll be able to do two things. Exhort the saints in the church with sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict. So the second one is negative. And it's talking about teaching to those in the church, but it's not the saints. It's uh, heretics in the church, sometimes false teachers in the church. It could be a Christian actually who has and believes a false teaching in the church that has spread. It could be believers who are actually creating gossip and division in the church. So this is strictly, categorically a negative word or verb at the end of verse 9. So it's a twofold ministry. When you're preaching, you need to be encouraging, feeding the saints, whatever they need. And they need to hear the full counsel of God. And at the same time, you need to be uh, rebuking, exposing, shaming, false teaching, false behavior. That is the twofold calling of a preacher from the pulpit. It can't always be just happiness. Happy, happy, happy. I'll give you some examples. But before I do, I just want to highlight a couple of other words there. Uh, exhort in sound doctrine. That's literally exhort in healthy doctrine. Healthy, that's what the word means. Healthy doctrine. Pure doctrine. Pure, pristine, biblical truth. Do not compromise it. A compromise would be Genesis 1 through 3 says that God created the world in six days. They were real days. That's what the Bible says. To tamper with that is, yeah, God's the creator and he created everything out of nothing and he's all powerful. That's true. But uh, he used evolution with creation. No, no, he didn't. That is not what Genesis 1 through 3 says. You are tampering. You are poisoning biblical truth. That is not healthy doctrine. That's damaging 
So that would be one example. Where the teaching has got to be healthy, it's got to be pure, it's got to be right out of the Bible and, and no compromise on it. And doctrine just means uh, biblical teaching. Um, so pastors are to patiently command believers with Scripture and all those facets with authoritative preaching, aggressive preaching, and sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's encouraging, sometimes it's calling them to action, whatever the context is, whatever the need is. Coupled with that, number four, pastors are to boldly confront with Scripture. Boldly confront. And that is where we looked at earlier at the end of verse 9. The pastor's got to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict. So you've got the positive component of preaching, feeding the saints, and then you've got this negative component of uh, exposing false behavior and false doctrine. Refute those who contradict. Positive and negative. And that's the nature of uh, the preaching ministry. It is it's affirmation and denials. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's what you should believe. Here's what you should refrain from believing. This is the positive. This is the negative. And that's true of anybody that teaches anything. The best teachers have a two-fold component to the way they teach, to their methodology. They have affirmations and denials. I don't care what the field is. Those are the best teachers. For example, I'm teaching someone to throw the football. Here's what you do. You hold the ball on the strings of the football like this. That's affirmation. That's what you do do. And then there's the denial, what you shouldn't do. Don't hold the ball at the bottom of the ball when you throw a football. That's bad. So you, that applies to everything. If you're a dentist and you're a teacher as a dentist, you're teaching the person that you're cleaning their teeth. Here's how you should floss. Here's how you shouldn't floss. Here's how you brush. Here's the things you shouldn't do. Like my dentist will tell me, you know, don't put uh, sweetener and stuff in your coffee. And I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to insult him and laugh in his face, but I'm thinking there is no way I'm drinking coffee without sweetener. <laughs> so how's this going to work? But anyway, but he's just doing his job. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And it's true in any field. And whatever your field is, it's the same thing. Affirmations and denials. Positive, negative. Those make the best teachers. And the pastor, the preacher, the teacher of God's Word needs to do the same thing. Affirmations and denials. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do. And part of that, what you should not do, is confronting error wherever it is. And so here's the nature of being a preacher. It is proclaiming the gospel and defending the gospel. You've got to do it. You've got to defend and some people are offended or incensed by that. It, can, it affronts their sensibilities. Maybe because they've never seen it before. Well, that was kind of negative. Yeah, well, that's what the Bible says. That's what God was really mad in that passage. And that's what the people needed to hear. And false doctrine that condemns people's souls, uh, it needs a resounding rebuke. Doesn't it? Absolutely. Who's the greatest teacher there ever was? Jesus. And he wasn't just love, 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 kiss the babies all the time. Read the Gospels. He taught the positive things. And then you go to Matthew 23. Seven times he says publicly as he's teaching the crowds, specifically zeroing in on the so-called uh, experts of the Old Testament. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Wow. And then he calls them names. You snakes, you sons of hell. You make your offspring twice the sons of hell that you are. Check it. I am not making this up. Matthew 23. That was Jesus incarnate love. That's what he said. Well, that was the Pharisees. A good Bible teacher would never do that to Christians, especially in a local church. Uh-oh, then you haven't read the Apostle Paul's 13 epistles. Did you know that every one of the 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul was 
written to correct either their theology or their behavior without exception. Every epistle by Paul had a corrective component to it. Read Corinthians. Shall I come to you with a rod and give you all a spanking when I get there? That's what he said. And he founded that church. He planted that church. He didn't get a very big offering from them after that letter. But anyway, what about Galatians? Man, in Galatians, it's the worst. Because usually Paul begins uh, his epistles with a great grace to you and peace. Hi, how you doing? I thank God for you. Uh, I, I, I'm so confident your sincere love of Jesus. Did you know he even said that to the Corinthians who were all messed up? He was very nice. Read it. First Corinthians chapter one. Very nice. And then he lays into him for 15 chapters. But he was sincere when he was being nice. When you get to Galatians, it's the unique out of the 13 epistles because Paul is not nice to the Galatians. That is the only epistle where after he says grace and peace, he doesn't get nice with them. He doesn't say, I thank God for you. As a matter of fact, he was very angry at them. And it begins with a rebuke. I cannot believe that you have been misled so quickly after my departure. What is wrong with you? This false doctrine that you have embraced. Man, if any of you believe that, uh, you are eternally condemned. And again, I say, you are eternally condemned. said it two times. Verse 6 and verse 9. Then verse 10, he goes on and says, Am I therefore your enemy because I tell you the truth? Am I here to please God or please man? Do you want me to tickle your ears? That's the nature of verse 10. It doesn't get better. Uh, it gets worse. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, You foolish Galatians. You foolish Christians at the church of Galatia, the church that I planted, those of you who are saved under my ministry, you foolish Galatians. And this is all over false doctrine. This is the Apostle Paul. This is not warm and fuzzy. But it is the truth that needed to be heard. And get this. It is the truth that would set them free. Doesn't sound loving, but guess what? It was the most loving thing in the world. When you tell somebody the truth, when they are blinded or deceived or hurting themselves, and you have the remedy and you tell it to them and it comes in the form of a rebuke, you are doing the greatest act of love that they need and it will set them free. Right? Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it doesn't always come in encouraging, positive, comforting, subtle, quiet, soft-spoken, feel-good words. Many times it comes in the form of a rebuke. And according to the book of Proverbs, the wisest man of all is the believer who can accept, embrace, believe, and apply a rebuke to their own life. That is true wisdom, isn't it? And it's one of the most important ways that God helps us grow. Because we are all vulnerable. That false doctrine has got to continually be exposed and shunned and shamed. That's the nature of that word, by the way, at the end of verse 9, on rebuke. It is a harsh word. Expose, refute, convict, shame, chide, punish. That's what it means. Pummel it. Destroy it. And Satan is so subtle. Wow. He, he doesn't just give you a blatant... Truth that's easy to identify. He, he couches it in Christian terminology, in Christian ease, so that it's very hard to detect. It is a supernatural counterfeit. And the most recent supernatural counterfeit of biblical teaching in America's church that I am aware of, I was reminded of two weeks ago when I was with a pastor here locally who's a friend of mine, and he was reminding me of this growing heresy in the church called gospel-centered preaching. Whoa. How could gospel-centered 
preaching be wrong, damaging, heretical. How is that possible? Well, that just shows you how clever Satan is. Don't get me wrong. Our preaching needs to be gospel centered. But this is a very specific methodology that says, and I have actually heard this. I've actually had people talk to me and rebuke me for my preaching because I'm violating gospel centered preaching. And my pastor friend reminded me of the ingredients of it. Uh, one of the earmarks of it is you're not supposed to, whenever you see a, an imperative in scripture, and we saw 60 plus imperatives in James. That's a command. Where God is commanding us to do something. Gospel-centered preaching says, well, every verse needs to have the gospel in it. Every sermon needs to have the gospel in it. I'm thinking, well, already that is not true. Not every verse has the gospel in it. Sometimes God is just giving very practical, needed information on something to do it the right way. Here are ten qualifications of an elder. There are ten qualifications. That's not the gospel. And the other component is, whenever you get to an imperative in Scripture, you don't teach it as an imperative. You're not supposed to command God's people. You're not supposed to tell them what to do. And I've actually had people tell me, I don't want to be told what to do from the pulpit. It's like, wow. That was when I was going through James. That is gospel-centered preaching. That So you turn all those imperatives into an indicative. It's just a declarative statement. It's not a command uh, on God's people because they say that's legalism. When you're asking and requiring and demanding believers to do something in obedience, then you are uh, putting uh, chains on them and it is none other than legalism. So that that is the most recent heresy that I am aware of and it is still developing, it's still spreading, and it's probably going to be out there for the next 10 years before it's really... Uh, identified, characterized, and legitimately exposed on a grand scale in the church. In the meantime, keep your ears open to hear that phraseology and then investigate and see, do they mean legitimate gospel-centered preaching, which we need to do, a biblical gospel-centered preaching ministry, or this new pseudo-version invented by Satan himself to the demise of the saints and undermining the glory of Christ. Well, We thank God for his warnings and his care for us in his words. Let's go ahead and pray to him and then we'll uh, partake in communion this afternoon. Father, we thank you for our time together, uh, the opportunity to worship you and gather with the saints. Thank you, God, for the treasure of your word. Scripture, it is living, it is active, it is our milk, it is our meat. It's how you minister to us, it's how you saved us, it's how you change us and help us grow. And it's how you give us and impart wisdom day to day so we know how to live in a way that pleases you. Thank you for making it very clear of how you want pastors and elders to be trained and used in the local church so they can be faithful in speaking on your behalf to the blessing of your people and also their protection and growth. We thank you for our time together as we uh, conclude our time together in worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.